When I was a little boy, my father was on the board of an organization called American Messianic Fellowship. And I grew up hearing about that organization. And little did I know that eventually the head of that organization would have a daughter who would marry this man right here. And Wes then took over from his father-in-law. And, you know, we've got quite a legacy. Isn't that interesting? God in his providence orchestrated all of that, and we didn't know each other at the time, but here we are co-laboring for the gospel together. And so um, we're, just, we're just so excited to have Wes here with us. I've, I've included just a little excerpt from their website in your bulletin to tell you a little bit about Life and Messiah, but I would encourage you to go on the website and to learn more about it. Uh, we support these, this dear couple here, and uh, in fact, it's been a couple of years ago when I was in Israel with Wes and Lori, and we want, there's some of you have asked if, if we could go again, and the answer is yes, we're looking at a year from this October, okay? So if you're interested, we would do the same thing, and, and I would go with you. So we're looking at a year from October. So start saving your money, and let me know if you're interested, because we literally need to begin planning now for that. I hope it doesn't happen, because I hope the Lord comes and snatches us away before then. But in case he doesn't, at least we'll be a little closer over there, I guess, right? Not really. I mean, that's the second coming. I don't want to get my eschatology mixed up here. But anyway, brother, we are so glad to have you come. Welcome. Yes. Um, y'all. <laughs> I lived in Miami for four years, so I guess I can claim the y'all. I'm a Connecticut Yankee, you know, so I remember when I uh, started selling books down here with the Southwestern Company back in my college days, and uh, I'd bounce up to a doorstep, and, you know, <clears throat> Mr. or Mrs. Jones would uh, come to the door and say, y'all still don't shoot Yankees down here, do you? The answer often was, well, every third one, and the second one just left. <laughs> you can use that line if you haven't. <clears throat> so imagine that you lived in a country where there was a heritage of hundreds of years of, of biblical truth being proclaimed. And, uh, and there's a lot of God talk in the culture, um, but there is a measurable rise in unrighteousness. And uh, imagine that you're living in a country where, where people stand up to, to speak the truth, to represent righteousness, um, but the community really isn't interested in, in hearing that. Imagine that you lived in a land where there was political intrigue and, and governmental uncertainty. Imagine that there were enemies who, who wanted to attack you to destroy your country and your culture. Can you imagine living in a world like that? Well, that's the world that Isaiah lived in. Let's open our Bibles to Isaiah 
We're going to look at chapter 26. But in chapter 1, Isaiah begins by talking about a people who are going through the motions religiously. Uh, They're bringing the sacrifices. The temple is still intact. But God says, I wish you would cut it out. In fact, your hypocrisy, you're going through the religious motions. Uh, You honor me with your lips, but your hearts are far from me. And God says, you know, even when you're doing these religious acts that I've asked and told you to do, you're fulfilling the commands on the outside, but, but you know what? You make me sick to my stomach. I mean, it's strong language that Isaiah uses in rebuking his generation. Can you imagine God coming to America and saying, you know what? Your religion makes me sick because you're just going through the motions. And Isaiah was actually commissioned by God to go and to speak to a people that God says, I have closed their ears so they're not going to hear. And I've closed their eyes so they're not going to see. But you talk about a job description that's full of frustration. And yet God says, you go and represent me. Isaiah himself was a sinful man. Remember in Isaiah chapter 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, it was a time of, of transition in the government. He said that he saw the Lord high and lifted up, and his train fills the temple, and immediately Isaiah is on his face. Depart from me, Lord. I am a sinful man, is the word of the man who meets Jesus in the New Testament. It's a reflection of the same attitude that Isaiah had. Woe is me. You know, in King James language, I am undone, like I I am done for. I'm a man of unclean lips. And God does a work in preparing Isaiah. It's a good thing that God is in the restoration business because none of us start out perfect, right? We, We start out broken and need repair. That's the goodness of a gracious God. And Isaiah is well into his ministry. I mean, 66 chapters in the book of Isaiah. And we're diving in, not in the middle, but in the first third here. He's got a heart that's burdened for his present people. But Isaiah is a prophet. And one of the wonders of the prophetic word, and especially when we have major prophets with lots of material, it's some tough sledding. It's, there's a reason that sometimes folks don't love to spend a lot of time in the Old Testament prophets because you have to work hard to know what time frame he's talking about because sometimes he's talking about his immediate situation. He's talking about his neighbors and the people around him, but he also talks about the prophetic future and there are a couple of time stops along the way. Israel's regathering. He He's talking here. In fact, let's look at chapter 25 just to get some of the setting. O Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will praise your name. For you have done wonderful things, plans formed of old, faithful and sure. That's a a great little verse. It sounds like something that maybe King David might have sat under a tree with a harp and, and put to music. O Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. Verse two, for you have made the city a heap. The fortified city, a ruin. 
The foreigner's palace is a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. Well, already you see just in these two verses a pretty distinctive shift in tone. You've got praising the Lord for the wonderful things that he's done, and you've got a ruined city. Therefore, strong peoples will glorify you. Cities of ruthless nations will fear you. And now he's talking about the prophetic future. So within three verses, we've got three very quick scene shifts. It's as though I had a PowerPoint up here and I put up a, a picture of a beautiful, peaceful scene, maybe a, a meadow with some birds and fawns running around. And then the next slide is one of conflict and of, of desolation of a city that's been bombed, perhaps. And then there's another picture, the one of verse 3. Strong peoples will glorify you. And now we see mighty armies bowing down before, before God. Just in these early verses, we can kind of have our heads jerked around quite a bit. Say, Isaiah, what is it that you're talking about? And it tells us that we need to pay close attention to our context here. Well, now we'll go to verse 1 of chapter 26. In that day, this song will be sung. So we've just sung some wonderful songs. I love the music that was chosen for us this morning. Righteousness and peace were mentioned. There's a focus on the Messiah and on grace. Uh, things that ought to cause our hearts to rejoice, as Isaiah was talking about in verse 1 of 25. I will exalt you. I will praise your name. But now he's talking about a song that we're going to sing yet future. And it will be sung in the land of Judah. So we're reminded that we're in the Old Testament. And I know that we love to spend time in the Gospels and, and have the story of Jesus unfolded from the proclamation of the fact that the Messiah was coming. The forerunner, John the Baptist, and his conception to parents of an old age and the promise that he would be the one who would prepare the way in fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies that the Messiah of Israel long awaited this desire of nations was finally here. But even in the early stages of the story of Jesus' birth, we find shepherds abiding in the fields in Bethlehem. These are Jewish shepherds. Today, if we were to go to Bethlehem, we'd find Arab, Arab village there. We'd find some Christian churches and we'd find some Muslim mosques. But there are no Jewish synagogues in Bethlehem today. It's a Jewish town. But in Yeshua's day, Jesus was born in the city of David, just outside of Jerusalem. And the shepherds were Jewish shepherds who were sent to be the first viewers of this fulfillment of Jewish prophecy that the Jewish Messiah had come. And in case we forget that, the Magi show up. These are wise men from afar who come. And what is their question to Herod? Where is he who is born king of the Jews? This little boy, still perhaps being nursed by his mom before the flight to Egypt is already identified as the king of the Jews by non-Jewish people. And we know Herod's re response to that was to order the murder of the babies of Bethlehem, the male children. 
And at the end of Jesus' earthly ministry, when he is crucified on the cross of Calvary for our redemption, what was the inscription that was put over the cross? Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Where is he who is born King of the Jews? Begins the earthly life of baby Jesus. King of the Jews is the epithet that's put mockingly on his cross before he's entombed. Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. And while we're talking about a prophetic future here that includes the whole earth, we see the focus in the land of Judah. This song will be sung. What is this song? We have a strong city. He sets up salvation as walls and bulwarks. I smile when I read this in the Hebrew. Salvation, Yeshua, is the exact same word as Yeshua. Just some different vowel pointings, but the letters are exactly the same. When the angel told Joseph, you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins, we, we know that Jesus is Savior because we know the whole story. But in Hebrew, it's, you will call his name Yeshua, for he will, Yoshia, call his name Savior, for he will save. In his very name, Jesus carries his job description. Salvation is part and parcel of who he is. Salvation as walls and bulwarks. Open the gates that the righteous nation that keeps faith may enter in. You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. This is for sure the most quoted verse of this chapter and one of the favorite verses for many in the book of Isaiah. You will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed upon you because he trusts in you. And, and that makes a nice little plaque to put up on the wall. It, it's a good reminder for us. We t- tend to personalize this, right? And there is a point in that. But this is in a much wider context. You see, what is it that we put our trust in? All of us are trusting in something. All of us have a center of our universe, and the default for us is the center of my universe is me. The center of your universe is you. If you don't believe this is true, then just hang around a two-year-old for a while. Lori and I were just out in California. In fact, she's not flying back to Chicago until tomorrow. So our almost two-year-old grandson is, is Jake. And you know, M-words are just part of his early vocabulary. You know, mama was the first, right? But very soon after came, like, mine, right? Yeah. Because that's who we are. We are the center of our own personal universe. And so it's all about us. We finished that wonderful chapter of Romans 11. I didn't know that Pastor was going to read Romans 11 this morning. I told him in the car on the way over because he also read it in the first service. It almost wanted me to stop and preach from Romans 11. There's so much good stuff in there. From him and through him and to him are all things is how Paul ends up that glorious three-chapter section of God's dealings, his heart for the Jewish people. From him and through him and to him are all things. It's not about Israel, folks. It's about Israel's God. Let's, let's be very clear about that. Israel is a special nation because God says they're his 
possession. They're his treasured possession. Because God says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of Israel. You and I worship the God of Israel. And when we trust in the Lord, we trust in the God of Israel. Trust you in the Lord forever. You will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed upon you because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever for the Lord God is an everlasting rock. You like the lyrics to this song? I don't know what the tune is, but we know what the words are. For he has humbled inhabitants of the height, the lofty city. He lays it low, lays it low to the ground, casts it to the dust. The foot tramples it, the feet of the poor, the steps of the needy. So that's the song. It's a song yet future. It's a song of the redeemed, of the righteous, and it will be sung in Judah. Why? Because Judah is the capital. So there are some of the verses in this section that deal, I think, with the tribulation period, and there are some that deal with the millennial reign. When you hear about a kingdom of righteousness and peace, and about a cessation of hostilities, and about a city that's been trampled, that's restored, we're talking about the millennial kingdom. The path of the righteous is level. You make level the way of the righteous. There's a strong focus on righteousness in this passage. A strong focus on righteousness in this passage. In the path of your judgments, O Lord, we see you. We wait for you. Your name and remembrance are the desire of our soul. My soul yearns for you in the night. My spirit within me earnestly seeks you. For when your judgments are in the earth, the inhabitants of the world Learn righteousness. Is your righteous soul troubled by the things that you see in our world? Isaiah's soul was troubled. Jeremiah's soul was troubled. Jeremiah was known as the weeping prophet. Just as Yeshua, Jesus, weeps over Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that has stoned the prophets. How often I wanted to gather you Under my wings like a mother hen would shelter her chicks. But you would not. The heart of a grieving God for an unrighteous people is reflected in the prophets. Jeremiah weeps over his people as Isaiah's heart breaks for his people. Lord, we wait for you. Your name and remembrance are the desire of our soul. What do you do when you live in the midst of a corrupt society? What do you do when evil is on the increase? What do you do when people call evil good and good evil? What do you do when your society is spiraling down into the moral cesspool? who not only do these things, as Paul says in Romans 1, but give hearty approval to those who do them. What do you do? Your heart yearns for the Lord. Your heart yearns for a righteous renewal, for a spiritual revival, for God to touch the hearts of the people in your community, that your nation might be brought to repentance. My soul yearns for you in the night. What do you think about in the small hours of the night? What is the focus of your attention? Is it 
Is it on the schedule? On whose birthday are we going to celebrate this week? Or what doctor's appointment do we need to get to? Is it the concerns of finances? You know, this investment that I'm considering, is it, is it going to be a good one? Or the one that I've made, was that a wise one? Is this the time to pull out of the market? Or, or is it the time to be in? Or is it a health situation that is consuming your thoughts in the small hours? Is this small pain that I'm feeling something that I need to be concerned about? Do I need to get this mole checked to see if it's cancerous? There are lots of things that can consume us and our thinking in the small hours of a night. Isaiah says, my soul yearns for you in the night. When he wakes up and he considers the world in which he's living and he sees the iniquity around him, he longs for the Lord to step in. My spirit within me earnestly seeks you. For when your judgments are in the earth, the inhabitants of the world learn righteousness. Lord, won't you step in and intervene in our world, in my country, in my community? Because the wicked are prospering. And what happens when the wicked do wickedly and do well? Verse 10, if favor is shown to the wicked, he does not learn righteousness. In the land of uprightness, he deals corruptly and does not see the majesty of the Lord. What happens when justice is deferred? What happens when people can do evil and not be incarcerated? What happens when wickedness is glorified, when it's trumpeted, when it's paraded in the streets? Then people don't learn righteousness. Oh Lord, your hand is lifted up, verse 11, but they do not see it. Isn't that true? God is at work in our world. If you look for evidence of God at work, it's not difficult to see. God is still in the business of redeeming shattered lives. If we had time and could push the pause button on the clock and give opportunity for you to give testimony, I'm sure there are more than a few here who could say, yeah, I saw God's fingerprints in my life even this last week. Your hand is lifted up, Lord, but they do not see it. Let them see your zeal for your people and be ashamed. Let the fire for your adversaries consume them. I still remember when Lori and I first moved to Israel. You know, we were young. I was, I think, 24, 25. We had never been to Israel, even as tourists. You know, the 10-day Holy Land pilgrimage thing, we hadn't gotten to do that. And so everything was brand new. And I remember just being overawed by the splendor of the old city of Jerusalem, being at the Western Wall, what we call the Wailing Wall for the first time, just the powerful emotions that welled up within. And I'm not sure why. It was just the expectation that I had, the assumption that I had that, you know, these are the people of the book. The Jewish people are God's people. They're God's chosen people. It's not that the Jewish people chose God. God says very clearly, you did not choose me, but I have chosen you. 
And I expected to see a holy people in a holy land. Oh, I expected there might be a little bit of crime. But I did not expect my wife to be propositioned by a bus driver on a public bus. And when her response was, but I'm married, I don't think my husband would like that. His response was, well, he doesn't have to know. When she came home and reported that, I want to go find that guy. In fact, we were on a bus not too long after, and Lori said, that's the guy. And I just sat there and drilled my eyes into his eyes on the mirror, saying, leave my wife alone. Abortion is per capita one of the highest in Israel. The Israeli army will pay for the first two abortions for a female in military service. Tel Aviv is trumpeted as the capital of the gay world. We're talking about today. The society in which Isaiah was living was one that was filled with immorality and with idolatry, things that grieved the heart of God and grieved the prophet. Does your heart break with the things that break God's heart? O Lord, you will ordain peace for us, for you have indeed done for us all our works. There's that word, peace. Back to verse 3, you will keep him in perfect peace. Here it's echoed, O Lord, you will ordain peace for us. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you, Jesus said. Not peace like the world gives. There's a peace that passes understanding. The word peace, you know, is the word shalom. I was really interested to note in the Hebrew text, I'd never seen this before, that perfect peace is shalom, shalom. It's actually repeated. The word is repeated. Shalom, shalom. Shalom is a word we use in greeting, right? I stood here and greeted you with shalom, y'all. And when you say goodbye, it's sort of like in Hawaii where you say aloha when you greet someone and aloha when you part. In Israel, you say shalom when you say hello and you say shalom when you say goodbye. It doesn't mean hello or goodbye. And it's most often translated peace as, as it is here. But the word shalom is so, so replete with meaning. It means far more than the absence of military conflict. That's typically what we think of. You know, war and peace, Tolstoy's classic work. There's war and there's peace. And then we think about peace on a personal level. You know, we've been having conflict at work or conflict on the schoolyard, but, but now we've made peace, right? So the bully isn't going to bully me anymore or... My coworkers not going to gossip about me anymore. Wouldn't that be nice to have peace at that level? But the word peace includes far more than that. In Israel, when you greet someone on the street, when you say shalom, you're saying hello, but you're also saying ma shalom cha or ma shalom ech. Ma is the word for what? And the ech or the cha is the pronominal suffix at the end that says I'm talking to a singular male or a singular female or a group of women or a group of men. There are endings for that word depending upon who your audience is. But in the middle, mashlom ha, mashlom ech, mashlom chem, mashlom chen, 
It's the shalom that's in the middle. And it sounds a little weird to say, how is your peace? Right? If shalom only means peace, then why are we asking, how is your peace? P-E-A-C-E, right? Not your peace like your six-shooter. But we're not asking, how is your peace? It, it would be most rightly translated, how's everything? Because the word shalom comes from the root shalem, which means wholeness, which means completeness. When you wish someone completeness, you want everything for them. Everything that brings them joy, everything that brings them happiness and satisfaction and, and safety, yes. Completeness. That's what the word Shalom is rooted in. Right? You go to the store, you go to the bakery, you can, you can order a, an uga, that's a cake. You can ask for a hatiha uga, that's a slice of cake. Or you can ask for an uga shlema. I want the whole thing. That's what you're asking for when you're asking God to bring peace. Pay, pray for the peace of Jerusalem they will prosper who love you, Psalm 122.6. That's still in our Bibles, right? Have you prayed for the peace of Jerusalem lately? Well, Jerusalem's not so much in the news these days, right? We've got, we've got ISIS that we're concerned about. Do you know that ISIS is on the border of Israel? Syria, up in the north, you've got Lebanon to the north, and you move over just a few degrees to the east, and you've got Syria, the Golan Heights is where Syria fought Israel. The Golan was in Syrian hands. You can see Damascus when Dave and the team were there with us and on the Golan. We could look over and see that valley that has seen so many wars. Asking for peace for Jerusalem does include safety and security amidst their battles. One of the apps I have on my phone is called Seva Adom, which literally means red color. It's the red alert. And at various times, randomly, my phone will beep and I look to see if it's a text. And it's, it's a red alert. And it's of interest to me, but it's of concern to me if I'm in southern Israel. Because that's the alert that is sent to everybody's cell phone saying, a rocket has just been launched. Can you imagine having in your cell phone a way of knowing that it's time to run to the bomb shelter? Uh, this isn't a video game. This is your life. Does Israel need shalom? Oh, yes, she needs shalom. And that... Verse 7 of Romans chapter 11, Paul says, Israel has not found what she sought for. What Israel earnestly seeks, she can't grasp. This is not a new thing. Jeremiah talks about Israel seeking water from broken cisterns because you need water to survive. But when you have a broken cistern, the water just leaks out. And you've forsaken me, the, the spring of living water. Jesus used the same imagery with the woman at the well. I'm the source of living water. We, we try to store up our reserves in broken cisterns. Or another word picture is putting 
your money into pockets with holes in them. You work hard and you get your material goods and you, and you try to preserve them, but there's an economic downturn. There's a, a market crash. And this really friend of ours moved to a new home and had a, had a safe built into his house. And his retirement was in gold coins. And he was protecting these gold coins. But he's on a trip and he comes home and he finds somehow somebody knew about the safe and somehow they got in and somehow that his entire life savings is gone. Lay up treasures in heaven, Jesus said, where there's no moth or dust or rust that's going to corrupt it and there's no thief that can thief that can break in and steal. O Lord, you will ordain peace for us, for you indeed have done for us all our works. Unless the Lord builds a house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord brings a peace, you might get a treaty that lasts for a while. Right now, Israel is on high alert, but there's no ongoing conflict in Gaza. Every once in a while, I'll get a report from the red alert system that a a rocket has been launched, but they're few and far between these days. But Israel's security system knows that they're arming all this money that was sent for cement to rebuild Gaza after the last war. You know where that cement is going, right? It's going into tunnels in the ground so that Hamas can once again come and attack. Can you imagine living in southern Israel knowing that, I mean, I can't imagine at night just hearing a noise and wondering if that's somebody scraping underneath my house with a tunnel ready to pop up. Shalom, shalom, ve'en shalom. Jeremiah says this, peace, peace, and there is no peace, and he says it again. A couple chapters later, Peace, peace, and there is no peace. We talk about peace. We pursue peace. We earnestly seek peace. But we can't get peace. And when you extrapolate and widen the lens to everything, shalom in its wider context, that everything that we seek for, we can't find. Why do you spend your energies seeking bread? Well, let's quickly move through the rest of this passage. Verse 13, O Lord our God, other lords besides you have ruled over us, but your name alone we bring to remembrance. They are dead. They will not live. They are shades. They will not arise. In that end, you have visited, to that end, you have visited them with destruction and wiped out all remembrance of them. But you have increased the nation, O Lord. You have increased the nation. You are glorified. You have enlarged all the borders of the land. So, Lord, O Lord, in distress, they sought you. They poured out a whispered prayer when your discipline was on them. Like a pregnant woman who writhes and cries out in her pangs when she is near to giving birth, so were we because of you, O Lord. We are pregnant, we writhe, but we have given birth to wind. So, this last week has been quite a week for us. Uh, We started 
the month of May with six grandchildren whom we'd met, the oldest of which is eight, and uh, among them, there's only one granddaughter. And then on May 5th in Chicago, after long hours of labor, our youngest daughter gave birth to her firstborn, another son, grandson number six. Long hours of labor. Well, it's not quite the same as it was when we were having children back in the old days. You know, they have this thing called an epidural now, which diminishes to some great degree the pains of labor. Not to say it's easy, nor pain-free, but definitely less so. Long hours of labor. Can you imagine laboring hours and hours and hours and no birth? This is a powerful picture. If you've ever been in a delivery room and you know the strength of a woman's labor in transition to push and push and push and push and no baby comes. This is the result of human effort in a spiritual level. Those who are trying to work to impress God. I talk to lots of people, Jewish people and Gentiles, in a lot of different settings. A lot of times it's on airplanes. And I can tell you, 99% of the conversations, I haven't tallied this, but if I had, it would be close to this, I'm sure. The great majority, in the 90s for sure, of people think that good people go to heaven and most people think they're pretty good. Can you imagine standing before the Holy One of Israel and recognizing with the searchlight of the Holy Spirit fully turned on you that the very thoughts and intents of your heart, the things that have been done in secret, the things that have been whispered, the things that nobody knows about, and all those things are on display. The things that we thought we got away with. I saw on the TV guide as I was looking through the TV guide on a television in Los Angeles. There's some show like, it was like, I got away with it. And then it's in parentheses, I almost got away with it. That's the name of a TV show. I've never seen it, but it sounds interesting, doesn't it? What did you almost get away with? What do you think you're almost getting away with? In that day, the things that were said in secret are going to be shouted from the housetops. There's nothing that's hid from the Holy One of Israel. Well, pregnant woman giving birth to wind, we've accomplished no deliverance in the earth. The inhabitants of the world have not fallen. Your dead shall live. I love this. You know, sometimes uh, Jewish people have a hard time believing in life after death. Did you know that? There are whole strains of practicing Jews who do not believe in an afterlife. I've talked with, with many of them. These are primarily Reformed Jews. Sort of like this life is all you get and you live on in the memory of your family. So there's a ceremony. It's called Yartzeit. Um, a lot of synagogues will have the walls of the deceased the names on the walls, and there will be a little light next to it. And then the light lights up every year on the annual celebration, and you remember your dearly departed. And for some, that's the best that they have hope for, is that their 
names will be remembered for how long? A generation? Two generations? But here is one of those clear references to resurrection in the Old Testament. There aren't a whole lot of them. Daniel 12.2 is probably the clearest, but this one is certainly, your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy, for your dew is a dew of light and the earth will give birth to the dead. Come, my people, enter your chamber, shut your doors behind you, hide yourselves for a little while until the fury has passed by. This is part of the reason why I think he's talking in the last days. He's talking about the tribulation time. It's like our redemption is almost here. Hang in there. The Lord's redemption is coming. Behold, the Lord is coming out, of, out from his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. And the earth will disclose the bloodshed on it and will no more cover its slain. There's good news. There's reason to rejoice. We started this chapter with a song. There's going to be a song of praise that's sung in the future. You know, sometimes it's the darkest before the dawn. And honestly, we don't know where we are on the prophetic calendar. Jesus says, when you see these things, lift up your head, your redemption draws nigh. But he talks about the fact that there are these birth pangs, right? And having just been with two daughters who were presenting baby boys four days apart, I know a little bit about the increasing frequency. You know, you get the watch out, the stopwatch, and you say, well... How long between the last contraction and how long did it last? I mean, some of you are nodding like, yeah, we know what that's about. Yeah. So we can look at our world and we can see the intensity of the contractions increasing and perhaps the frequency decreasing. And if our eschatology is right, then the Lord's next agenda item for us as believers is to remove us from the earth in the rapture. But even if we're not the generation that sees the Lord's return, my father-in-law, more than anybody I've ever known, believed firmly in the imminent return of the Lord to the point of saying that he fully believed that he would live to see the Lord's return. Every letter I ever saw Bill Curry sign said, until he come, until he come, until he come. Bill's been with the Lord since 2000. But we could be the generation that sees the rapture of the church. If today were the day that the Lord Jesus said, it's time for my bride to be united with me, what would your destiny be? And who would you be leaving behind if you're one of the blood-bought and are taken home? Who in your circle of influence, in your family in your place of work or school, in your neighborhood, would have no clue about the gospel. It's a tremendous joy and a privilege and a great responsibility to bring the gospel back to its source, to bring the gospel back to the Jewish people. I spent most of the time this morning dealing with a text of scripture because that's what we want to do in a morning service, but I also want to say thank you to you for your prayers and, and for your support and to tell you that we see God's fingerprints at work in the Jewish community. And in more than four decades of Jewish ministry, there are things that are happening now that I have never seen before. As one example, in our 
neighborhood. We live in Northwest Indiana, the headquarters of Life and Messiah. We started a Chicago Hebrew mission back in 1887, and I do have white in my beard, but no, I was not the founder. 1887 until 1953, we were Chicago Hebrew mission. And then we became American Messianic Fellowship. And today we're known as Life and Messiah. But when we were 100 years old, in 1886, we moved down to a south suburb. It's right on the Indiana border. So I live in northwest Indiana because I don't have to pay Cook County corruption taxes. You all heard about Mayor Emanuel. And yeah, Illinois has a couple of governors in jail, you know, trying to outdo the most corrupt states in the union, I guess. So we live in northwest Indiana, and there's a Jewish community there. That's part of the reason that we moved to, to Munster. But over the years, we moved there in 1991, and honestly, we've had a very difficult time building relationships. But in the last two years, that's begun to change to the point that the director of the local Jewish federation asked us, Life and Messiah, to co-sponsor an event to celebrate Israel this last month. And I said to him, well, you must have pretty good job security if you're willing to partner with a ministry that's been bringing the gospel to the Jewish people since 1887. A reform rabbi and his wife from town, whom I had never met before. I've been in the same room with him before, but he didn't come up and introduce himself to me when we went to the Jewish Federation banquet a couple of weeks before. But he came up to me after the meeting was over he and his wife separately, and said, what a great evening this was. And I could just kind of sense from both their attitude and the words that they used that they had a new respect for Christians who love Israel. It's one of the easiest touch points that we have. If you're praying for the Jewish people and for Israel, then you have something that you can share with a Jewish person when you meet them. So, you know, I've been praying for Israel for years now. I'm so thankful for what we've received from the Jewish people. As a Christian, I want you to know I'm so grateful for the scriptures that your people penned and preserved so that I could know the God of Israel. Saying thank you or saying I'm sorry for the things that the church has done and persecuting the Jewish people through the centuries. Those are real door openers for relationship don't know what all is going to eventuate from this. Our love for these new friends is not conditioned on their coming to faith in Jesus. We try to make it very plain that we believe Yeshua is the Messiah and we want everybody to know that. And most especially the Jewish people to know their own Messiah. But it's not a condition for our relationship or our love and concern for them. When we were approached some years ago, I think it was 2006, I was up in Toronto, and the head of a ministry down in New York called Emmanuel Ministries was also at the same missions conference, Mission Fest Toronto. Our booths were just kind of catacorned to each other. And Paul came up and introduced himself and said, um, I want to talk with you when you have a few minutes. I said, sure, let's talk now. So he said, you know, our ministry is also almost 100 years old back then. And he said, uh, we've been looking for a director now for almost two years. I was the director. 
Um, but I've retired and I'm pastoring up here in Toronto. Um, I don't see that we're going to have a candidate anytime soon. If we don't get a qualified candidate, would you be interested in merging? I won't tell you all the details, but I will tell you that one of the things, I grew up near New York. I was about two, two and a half hours away from New York City. And I have to tell you that New York City was a city I loved to drive around. You know what I mean? Not drive around in the city, but drive around on the outside of the city. It's traffic and it's noise and it's population and it's New York, you know? It's also the largest Jewish population in the world outside of Israel. I wish I could say I was on my knees saying, God, give me Brooklyn or I die, but it wasn't that way. But God gave us Brooklyn, and our training center is right on the edge of a Jewish community. And we've already been approached a couple of times by Jewish firms who want to buy our building because the Jewish community is expanding with the ultra-Orthodox and their population growth. They need more space, and they're coming to our neighborhood. They're directly across the street now. You walk the first door on Avenue K off of Flatbush as you go west has a mezuzah and the second one and the third one and the fourth one. It's a Jewish community and we're right on the east side. We're on Flatbush Avenue on the east side and the Jewish community is coming our way. And we thought, Lord, how can we penetrate? We've been at this now for almost 130 years and still trying to figure out how do we reach the Orthodox. But God in his sovereignty is touching the hearts of ultra-Orthodox Jewish people. Our In Search of Shalom project, you can go to InSearchOfShalom.com and see what we're doing there. That's um, one of the ways of anonymously Jewish people can interact with the gospel. They can do a live chat with somebody in the privacy of their own room without having to meet a missionary out on the street handing out a gospel tract. There's an Israeli fellow, and I'll try to tell the story quickly because our time is gone an Israeli fellow who's going to yeshiva. This is a religious school. This is where, it's like a seminary where your time, long hours, I'm saying long hours, 12 hours a day can be devoted to studying the Talmud. The Talmud is this encyclopedia-like set of rules and commentaries on the scripture. Most, uh, one of the biggest shocks to me was that most Jewish people really don't know what this book says. They know, if they're religious, they know what the Talmud says about what this book says. But they don't really read the Bible so much. It was shocking to me. This fellow is studying the Talmud and he has questions. Simple things like, well, God must love the Gentiles too, right? And, you know, as a young man, he's raising his hand and asking the rabbis. But the questions that he's asking are not lining up with what the Talmud is teaching. And so it's at first an irritation and then a concern like, I'm going to have to move you up the ladder of authority here if you keep asking these kinds of questions. Stop asking these questions. Well, you didn't want to stop asking the questions. And so he started searching. And somehow he found a pastor in Atlanta online and started corresponding with him and heard the gospel. And now he's 30 years old and he's still not married. And this is not acceptable in the Orthodox community. By the time you're 30, you should already have four or five kids, right? So rabbi says, come on over and we'll line up some brides for you, right? So Jesse, that's what we'll call him. Jesse comes over to get a bride. But secretly, he's trying to find out what the truth is. And some of the places that he's looking are 
ones you might not expect. For example, he's in contact with the Mormons. And he thinks the Mormons are Christians because it says Church of Jesus Christ right on their name. And so he's actually to the point of wanting to be baptized and has an appointment to be baptized. But in God's sovereign grace, he also was put in touch with our staff. And Peter, who is living at Emmanuel House, our center in Brooklyn, begins to interact with this fellow. He makes a profession of faith. And the day before he's supposed to be baptized by the Mormons, Peter actually goes with him to see the bishop there in New York. And Peter asks him some penetrating questions about what Mormonism really teaches. And the guy says, yeah, this is what Mormonism really teaches, like, like God had a wife and that's how Jesus was born. And Jesse is just shocked. He, he can't believe this nonsense. And so instead of being baptized in a Mormon church, he was baptized in an evangelical free church a couple of weeks ago in Brooklyn. I haven't seen this in four decades of ministry. Stories like this are happening. So when you pray for life and Messiah, when you pray for the peace of Jerusalem, what you're asking for is for God's very best. And God's very best is not deliverable in any other package other than the person of Yeshua, the Jewish Messiah. So pray that God will continue to open the spiritual eyes of understanding, unblock the ears that have been resistant to the gospel. The same spiritual blindness that was in Isaiah's day persists today among the Jewish people. But we're seeing God do some remarkable things. And with your continued partnership, we're trusting God for greater things to come. God bless you as you serve him today. May he give you his perfect peace. Not just absence of conflict, but the presence of his very self. That everything that you need for life and for godliness, for security, for joy and satisfaction, for meaning and purpose, for endurance and courage, all of that may God give to you in the person of his Son. God bless you. Shalom, what a wonderful word. And Lord, I do pray for your perfect peace to rest and abide on these dear folks. Grace and peace, righteousness and peace, these wonderful couplets that we find in Scripture. Peace does not come apart from your gracious work in our lives. And righteousness is granted because of your grace. And because you count and treat us as righteous, then we can have perfect peace with you and have you provide all that we need. Use us for your glory, we ask. So we pray for the salvation and the peace of Jerusalem. In Jesus' name, amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to the teaching ministry of Calvary Bible Church in Jolton, Tennessee. For more information on Calvary Bible Church or for more audio, please visit our website at cbctn.org. Dot O-R-G.